0: You are tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The following program is a rebroadcast of Salvation is from the Jews with Roy Shoman.
1: Hi, welcome back. It's great to be here with you on Salvation is from the Jews, the show on Radio Maria, which is dedicated to celebrating the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith. There are actually two ways to look at it, celebrating the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith or celebrating the fulfillment of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church. Now, we have uh, had the last few weeks, I have had the great pleasure of having some other Jewish entrants into the Catholic Church on the show as guests to give their witness testimony. In fact, I I started the series giving my own witness testimony, and then each week had another grateful Jewish entrant into the church to talk about how God worked in their lives to bring them into the fulfilled form of Judaism, the completion of Judaism, which is the Catholic Church. Last week... You may recall, if, if you were with us, that my guest had actually been a rabbinical student, a student in Israel studying to be a rabbi when he found his way to the truth of the Catholic faith and was very, very gratefully baptized and entered the Catholic Church about a year ago. Now, I don't know if you remember from last week, but in fact, right at this very moment, he is undergoing a full day of interviews at his diocesan seminary, because he feels he has a vocation to the priesthood and is very eager to um, enter the priesthood, should that be God's choice for him. And so he invited us last week to pray for his discernment and for his vocation and for the correct fulfillment of that vocation. And so I would like to um, uh, respect that wish of his. This week, too, since right as we speak now, he is in the process of, of those interviews, and presumably the the diocesan seminary is in the process of discerning whether, in fact, uh, he should be admitted um, as a seminarian. So I'd like to uh, pray that all that goes well and God's will is completely fulfilled in his life. Uh, Let me just back up and say, if you didn't hear the uh, interview the show last week with the interview of him, and you still wish to hear it, it's archived both on the Radio Maria website and also, there's a link to it on my own website, which is called SalvationIsFromTheJews.com. And on the home page of that, you'll see across the top a, bo- a banner, which lets you listen to any of the previous shows, including last week's show. So, um, when uh, Louis, which was his, is his name, was on last week, he gave us the treat of chanting the Hail Mary in Hebrew which I know moved me very deeply, and I suspect moved many of you very deeply. So as a way of praying for the correct discernment of both the diocese and him as as to his future in the priesthood, I will uh, play now his beautiful chant of the Hail Mary, and perhaps you want to join me in praying the Hail Mary along with the chant for that intention. So if we could have it now, please.
0: Shalom lach miriam. Meleat hachesen adonai mach meruchah hasanashim uvaruk peribit yeshua miriam hachedosha em hahelohim irpale libahate nu hachotim atahuvi
2: Amen.
1: Amen. Now, we also have a very special guest this week also. But before I introduce him and invite him to, to join us in our conversation, I would like to continue with a little catechesis, so to speak, on the interplay between Jew and Gentile in the church and use that by way of introduction. But before bring him on, let me continue with a little catechesis in Romans 11, uh, you'll see how this relates to our guest as I go along. Romans 11 is St. Paul's letter, of course, in the in the um, New Testament, which is mo- the most central, the primary source of our theological understanding of the mysterious interplay between Jew and Gentile in the church in between the first and second coming of Christ. So I would like to begin this week's show with a little discussion of His metaphor of the olive tree, St. Paul uses the metaphor of an olive tree. It's as the tree of salvation, so to speak. And that tree, the trunk of that tree, the roots of that tree flowed from Judaism. And then as the branches emerged from above the ground, of course, the Gentiles were grafted onto that tree. This appears in Romans 11, beginning around uh, verse 16. So I'll just read from there. If the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember, it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. So we see here that the olive tree is actually a picture of the church. And the roots were from Judaism. The original branches were the Jews, because they were originally part of that covenant with God. Some of those branches were broken off. Those are the Jews who did not follow Christ, who don't have faith in Jesus. But they were broken off to make room to graft in the wild olive branches, that's the Gentiles, so that they could share the richness of the olive tree. So I'll I'll go back to verse 17 and then continue. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember, it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But do not become proud, for even they, if they do not persist in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So here we have the picture, this olive tree of the church, and, you know, at the time of the completion of salvation. And that olive tree, the, the root and the trunk was in Judaism. The branches were originally the Jews. Some of those branches were broken off. Those are the Jews who did not follow Christ, but they were broken off to make room for the grafting in of wild olive branches. Those are the Gentiles. And if you're one of those grafted in wild olive branches, don't boast over the broken off original olive branches, because if you do want to boast, remember that they were part of the original tree. God has the power to graft them in again. And when he does... They'll be particularly well suited to that tree because they were originally part of that cultivated olive tree. So this is St. Paul's beautiful picture of Jew and Gentile united in the church at the end of time. Now, why am I saying this? I'm saying this for two reasons. One is that it's evident from this metaphor and also from everything else we know from Scripture that there is now, um, that everybody is equally, has an equal claim on God's mercy. As a matter of fact, St. Paul closes the chapter by saying that, um, quote, this is starting with verse 30, and St. Paul is speaking to the Gentiles here, just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. In other words, he's speaking to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were once disobedient to God, in other words, out of communion with God, but have now received mercy because of the disobedience of the Jews. The Jews' failure to follow Christ is what opened the the floodgates of the church to allow the proper inflowing of gentiles into the church so they have now been disobedient that that's the jews are now in a state of disobedience in their failure to recognize christ in order that by the mercy shown to the gentiles the jews too may receive mercy when they come into the church so that's really the theme of today's show is the unmerited mercy of god which all people have an equal claim to jew and gentile however now that i think of it giving it a second thought one could say that not all people have an equal claim to God's mercy. Jesus himself explained some of this mystery in his uh, visions, in his appearance, I should say, to St. Faustina, who was a Polish nun in the first half of the 20th century, who received a series of visions over an extended period of time of Jesus. She wrote her diary. uh, The diary is in The Good Graces of the Church, St. Faustina was canonized in, I believe, the year 2000. And Jesus says to St. Faustina this very mysterious statement. He says to her, Your misery does not hinder my mercy. The greater the misery of a soul, the greater its right to my mercy. The greater the misery of a soul, the greater its right to my mercy. So we see that in a way, one could argue, that not all of us are equally... Um, entitled, so to speak, have equal rights to God's mercy. But it's not the way humans might think. It's not that the more virtuous have a greater right to God's mercy. It's the greater your misery, the greater the sinner, the greater the right to God's mercy. Now, that is by way of a rather long-winded introduction to my guest, who I think, if I I don't want to offend him, but might be somewhat (laughs) of an illustration of this, because as I said, my guest last week, was a uh, Jewish rabbinical student in Israel, very hungry in his search for God, who was, you know, uh, Jesus showed His mercy to. And I'm afraid that my guest this week has a somewhat different background. So with that, I'll turn the microphone over to him, and perhaps he will um, share his witness testimony with us. So welcome to the show, Scott.
0: Thanks, Roy. I appreciate it. And the uh, the chanting of the Hail Mary in Hebrew was beautiful. Okay. Well, just to give people a quick sketch of where I'll be going, um, I robbed three banks at the age of 18, and uh, went to maximum security prison. And then later, upon my release, I excelled in academics and actually ended up studying political science and <clears throat> political philosophy in the political science department at the University of Michigan. Uh, but I didn't have God in my life, and I was leading a very decadent life, and I was frankly miserable. And then God, uh, one day, intruded on my life while doing yard work. Uh, but before we get to all that, let's, uh, let's start at the beginning. Well, like a lot of people, I grew up in a home with a lot of conflict, you know, a lot of uh, physical and, and mental abuse. And the thing about life is, you know, it really turns on how you respond to suffering. You know, do you... Do you respond to suffering by taking refuge in Christ, relying on His strength, on His healing grace? Or do you respond to suffering the way I responded to suffering, you know, recoiling in my pride and ashamed of my human weakness? And really what I did was I returned sin for sin. So at the age of 13, I remember being chased out of my home. And uh, as I was walking down the driveway, I kind of slowed down in front of this giant Douglas fir tree. And I talked to that tree as though the tree were God. And I said, I said to God, I said, how could you do this, you know, to a child? How could you let me go through this year after year? And I was very furious with God. I said, I said, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You know, just leave me alone. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to rely on myself and get by my way. I don't ever want to hear from you. And, uh, and so a couple of years later, um, I started lifting weights every day and I started, uh, training at a local boxing club. I had no interest in, in doing golden gloves or competing. I just simply wanted to learn how to defend myself. And sure enough, the day came when there was a conflict in the house and I was able to successfully defend myself and it was one of the most remarkable days of my life because I knew right then that I was never gonna that all the troubles at home were done and so I made a vow I said to myself no one's ever gonna tread on me again I'm never gonna be a victim I'm never gonna be at the mercy of another one again and I said it with a, an icy resolution you know and I also got from that experience, for the first time, I felt liberated, I felt in control of, of my own life, and I liked that sense of power. It was kind of intoxicating, you know. Well, the problem is, uh, by the time I was freed from the problems at home, I was such a broken person by that point, that it was too late that I couldn't. You know, I couldn't rely on my own strength and my own abilities because I was already shattered. And so, um, the only, the only way I felt that kind of liberation that I craved, that kind of uh, control and power was committing crimes late at night when everyone was asleep. I'd prowl about at all hours of the night and commit all sorts of, you know, petty crimes. I'd get in fights with other young men to prove how tough I was. I'd break into cars, things like that. Well, as you might imagine, my life just continued to spiral out of control, and so at the age of 18, after being expelled from high school, finally, I had been suspended seven times my senior year alone. The the principal told me it was a record that my high school had been around 100 years and no one had ever been suspended seven times in one year. And, you know, they really gave me every chance they could. You know, there were so many different people and organizations that really tried to, you know, that really tried to bring me into their bosom. But, you know, it was it was hopeless. So I was expelled from high school. I quit my job not long after that because I couldn't handle the stress of, of holding down a job. And I decided to rob banks. Um, you know, it wasn't as out of the blue as you'd think because I had been – committing an escalating series of petty crimes, uh, even up to felonies, actually. Some of my friends were car thieves. And and so I'd already been kind of getting deeper and deeper into the criminal world. Some of my friends would uh, go down to Humboldt County in California and uh, rob rob the pot fields down there, which is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. But anyway, so uh, I ended up robbing three banks. And, uh, you know, the first two, the first two banks, you know, I, I got that feeling of control and, and liberation and the third bank, it lost its novelty. And I was just, I was shattered. And so I was actually glad when one of the guys I used to steal cars with turned me into the police, he turned me in to get rid of his own felonies, also, you know, cause he was in trouble with the law. He also got, um, he got the reward money. He got some other goodies. Uh, so one day the police, they, uh, they raided my house, and they actually made a mistake. They thought I was out in front. That's actually a friend of mine who was wearing a motorcycle helmet. He wrestled on the ground. I was inside the house. I saw what was happening. I grabbed a gun, a semi-automatic rifle that I had under the bed. And, you know, I, I never had a plan or desire to shoot out with the police. I just thought, you know, that's what you do when the police arrived. You know, I guess I'd watched too many movies or something. So I held the gun in my hand for a split second. And this bright thought of hope flashed through my mind and said, um, you know, I'm young. I'm 18. And I threw the gun back under the bed, ran out the back door and was arrested a short time later. Now, when I was arrested, I was actually extremely happy. I was full of joy and relief. And uh, the police thought it was strange, but they were very happy to talk to me, and I told them everything that they wanted to know and more. They didn't even know that I'd robbed three banks. I thought they only robbed two. And, you know, I just really I threw myself on the mercy of court and uh, didn't play any games with the justice system, just said, you know, here I am, this is what I did, do with me what you will. And it actually... um It actually netted me the lowest possible sentence a person can get for robbing banks. But but anyway, um, you know, I should take a step back and talk about why I robbed banks. Um, One reason I robbed banks was because, you know, there was this kind of despair that Roy has talked about in the past on his shows. And, um, you know, I wasn't just alienated from God. I was also alienated from myself, a neighbor. And I just, you know, I hated that sense of deep estrangement from really the very existence of life. And so I thought of robbing banks as a way of, oddly enough, kind of breaking through the kind of facade of life. That robbing banks was so out of the ordinary and such a crazy, radical thing to do that it would almost. Storm the heavens and kind of split the universe in two, and I see what life was all about, who I was, who I was, and what my purpose was. It's a very, very strange view, but Mary, you
1: know, it sounds—it actually it sounds very beautiful in a, in a backhanded way. It sounds like um, you were yearning for something transcendent in life, some you I know, was. some meaning and purpose and and uh, depth to life, which wasn't there on the surface once you had rejected God. And so yeah. in the, you know, thrill-seeking and drama of being a bank robber, you thought that would kind of scratch that itch. Exactly. Um, it, it sounds like a very very beautiful, in a way, uh, picture of how, noth- frankly, nothing makes sense without God and nothing has a purpose without God. And, um, uh, you know, it's it just makes people go in all kinds of uh, crazy directions trying to fill that hole which nothing but God can fill.
0: Yeah, you know, if you've ever read the book or seen the movie Moby Dick, you know, by Herman Melville, that's exactly the main theme of the book is Captain Ahab thinks that by hunting down and killing Moby Dick, the white whale, that he'll somehow kind of split the heavens in two. He's got this famous speech where he says, life's a bunch of pasteboard masks. And you got to break on through to the little lower layer, he says. And he thought Mo- killing Moby Dick would help him break through the mask of life. So, so I wasn't the only one who had that very odd view. <laughs> but anyway, um,
1: but um, let's—I uh, I don't want to—I don't want to run out of time before we, sure. we get to the conversion parts of your story. So. So um, you found yourself in prison at 18, maximum security prison, very, very tough place. You held your own very successfully. Um, You started uh, reading voraciously, as I understand, and were released relatively soon and and decided to get a higher degree in philosophy. Did I get that right?
0: Um, Yeah, after my release, I got, uh, my, my focus was always political and moral philosophy, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is an interesting prison story because it shows how God is always trying to reach us, right? Um, In prison, I became what they call a solid con, which is basically the prisoners who run the prison. Um, They kind of adopted me uh, because I was tough and I knew how to fight and I was discreet. I minded my own business. They knew I was reliable. I was was eager. I wasn't eager to fight, but I fight if that had to happen. And so I really fell in with the crowd that was running all the smuggling, bringing all the drugs in from the outside, um, as well as smuggling inside the prison. Like, I was heavily involved in smuggling food out of the kitchen. Your listeners might find it funny. I'd actually line my boots, the soles of my boots, with pepperoni and cheese and then walk out of the kitchen. I worked as a cook in the kitchen. Walked out of the kitchen because they'd always, you know, pass search you. Um, on pepperoni and cheese, and then I, you know, traded for marijuana or something like that, or you know, pay off poker debts or something, but uh, so uh yeah, I fell into the toughest crowd in prison, and so I was, like I said, what they call a solid con. Well, when I, you know, right when I got to prison, I wanted to rebuild myself, because I knew I was a wreck, you know, and I wanted to find out who I was and what life was about, so I decided to start off by reading the Bible, you know, and so I, I opened up the Gospel, and I was, I was amazed, because it was evident that this just wasn't a normal book. I mean, the letters were just zipping off the page, and the whole book was almost gently charged with a kind of warm electricity. It was very strange. Um, looking back on it, obviously, God was sort of vivifying the Gospels and saying to me, this is true, I mean, you know, this is where you need to be, Scott, And I really was taken by the Gospels. Um, Unfortunately, it only lasted for a few weeks because, you know, reading the Gospels, I understood that I'd have to be a person of mercy. I'd have to be a person of patience. You know, I couldn't be this tough convict. And, And it made me feel vulnerable, you know. So I remember I'd walk around the prison, you know, thinking about the gospel, really just kind of drinking it up and basking in the words of Christ, but then at the same time, my fists would just pulse and clench. And I I mean, it was the strangest thing ever. I'd walk around ready to punch the first person that disrespected me. You know, while I was thinking about the gospel, it was a crazy thing. So, you know, something had to give. And, you know, I'm ashamed to say that I wasn't willing to give up my status, you know, as a solid con. I made that vow that no one was ever going to tread on me again. And uh sadly, I I chose that vow, that life um over over the gospel. So anyway, so when I you know when I got out of prison, um I I went to, uh, like I said, I developed this life, the mind, in prison. You know, I kind of had led a double life in prison, where I'd be this solid convict, and then I'd be up in my cell reading, really, the classics of Western civilization, mostly the secular ones, you know, starting with the Enlightenment and afterwards. And so I went to Portland Community College after getting out of prison. This was in 1995. Got straight A's and took BSAT and got a very high score, um, and then went to a small local liberal arts college that was really a weed college. It was, it was like a training ground for future professors, and they have an excellent track record in placing people in doctoral programs. So I went there, and I was very successful. And uh, then in 2002, I applied to um, some graduate schools in political science to study political philosophy, and, and I got into some, and I chose the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Now, when I when I arrived at the University of Michigan, you know, my my story was great on paper, right? Mm-hmm. I sort of made this steady ascent up through academics. I um, always had a good girlfriend, and, and uh, you know, I was good at sports and things like that, mountain hiking and rugby and things. So I looked like, you know, I was on top of the world. But truth be told, I actually, I was, year by year, I was becoming a worse person, you know, really someone who sort of used other people as objects, especially women, someone who really retreated into himself and was isolated, you know, I hardly had any real friends other than whoever I happened to be dating, um, the only, uh, you know, actually in prison, I had lots of genuine friends, you know. Guys, I'd sit down and talk all night about everything mm-hmm. under the sun. You know, we were really close mm-hmm. in prison. But after prison, I just slowly drifted away from, you know, from people.
1: Well, I I, I hate to um, to kind of, uh, you know, force things along, but we're going to come <laughs> up to a, a break pretty soon. And I, I would love to, before the break, hit on what happened in that April in 2007 that, that changed mm-hmm. everything for you.
0: Great. Okay. Um, So, you know, the night before, in late April, I just submitted my grades, you know, from teaching, and, you know, I was looking forward to a great summer. Uh, I was going to work on my dissertation all summer, and I was going to teach a class by myself, and I was looking forward to that, but I was troubled because there was this, you know, nice young lady who led a very hard life, you know, and... She was a born-again virgin. She was an evangelical. And, you know, I kind of put some pressure on her. I just said, look, if we start dating, you know, I'm not the kind of guy to go along with the born-again virgin stuff. And she was extremely hurt by that. And, you know, after that happened, I was so mad at myself. And so, you know, that morning, that late April morning, I started to mow my lawn. And the whole time, I was just, just so furious at myself because... You know, I was 33, and I'd already figured out that, you know, it didn't matter how beautiful or charming or intelligent a woman was. You know, a woman could not make me happy just by herself, you know. I needed some peace and joy in my life before, um, you know, before a woman could then help, you know, bring some joy and peace to my life. And so, you know, I'd already... My use of women as idols, right, had already been exposed. And that's why I was so furious with myself. You know, I just said, when are you ever going to learn? How could you treat her that way, given the life she had? Because she came from a home with six different stepfathers, with her with her younger brother dying of muscular dystrophy. And so I was just furious with myself. And so as I was in this sort of attitude of repentance, I had uh, just turned a corner with a lawnmower and um, all of a sudden, everything around me kind of froze out, right? All the thoughts in my mind, all the kind of exterior sensations. And this voice, which I knew was a heavenly voice, this voice said, it presented fully and clearly on my mind, this voice said, I love you and I forgive you. And as the words concluded this immense love, this perfectly pure, unspotted love entered into my chest and and sort of gently exploded, right? And it slowly spread from my heart up to my head and down to my toes. And I stood there in place for about 10 seconds and I discovered in a strange way God had placed two thoughts in my mind. I guess they call it infused knowledge, right? So here I'm standing there with the lawnmower running, and it's like God just placed these two thoughts, like like a person just places a glass of water on a table. And, and the first thought was that I just knew that the chip on my shoulder was gone. You know, I'm sure all of us have known ex-convicts, and, you know, we often have big chips on our shoulder, you know. And God removed that, and, and sure enough, I sort of checked inside me. You know, it kind of sounds funny, but I kind of searched inside my soul, and it was gone, right? That chip, that, that wariness, that mistrust that ex-convicts have, it was gone. Okay, so that the second thought was more profound. The second thought was, I knew that God's promise to me was that eventually, not right then, or I don't even know when, but eventually he'd restore me to the little boy that I'd been about 25 years before. So all the sin, right, that others had inflicted upon me and then that I had inflicted upon others, right, all of that sin would eventually be washed away. It would never, and it would not even have any effect, any lingering effect. Right, that I would just be the sort of happy, loving, carefree, trusting child that I've
1: been. Wow, that's that's incredibly beautiful. Um, We've probably come up to the point where we ought to be taking the the break of just a minute for you know two or three minutes of music. We'll come back at the other side of the break, and Scott will talk some more about um, about that experience. I hope of his experience of God's love. Of a subsequent experience uh, or two uh, of a somewhat mystical nature. I definitely want to talk about the, the vision of demons. So we'll be back with you on the other side of this short break. Thanks.
0: to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to a rebroadcast of Salvation is from the Jews with Roy Showman.
1: Hi, welcome back. If you've just joined us, we've been speaking with Scott, who has a very beautiful witness testimony conversion story that he's been sharing with us of having uh, had a rather rough childhood and adolescence and a very rebellious adolescence, robbing three uh, banks by the time he was 18, getting caught going to a maximum security prison, coming out, uh, having studied well in prison, and and, uh, eventually entered a doctoral program, still with a uh, rather upside-down view, in some ways, of morality and life. And then he had a very direct experience of God's love, which brought tremendous healing and a tremendous surge of conversion, and not only healing in the moment, but a promise of eventual healing to where he would be that undamaged child again. And that's where we took our break. So welcome back, Scott.
0: Thanks, Roy.
1: And, um, I, uh, I, I would like to, I, I'm sorry to do this to you. Oh, let me just say that you, you did write a very beautiful account of your witness testimony, which I think you have up on the internet. Do you know offhand the, the address or how people can find that? Sure.
0: Yeah, you can go directly to it. It's bring us to life, all one word, dot com. So you can go directly to my story, or you can Google my name, um, which is Scott, S D O T T, Wolsey, W O L T Z E.
1: Okay. Great. Now, I, I would like to, because I'd like to have a little time left on the show to speak about um, the healing power of God's love and also of the role of the demonic and the spiritual warfare, which is really the mm-hmm. underpinning of our struggle here on earth. So, that's obviously, I'm, I'm trying to lead you in the direction of an experience mm-hmm. that you had just a few days after that experience of yeah. God's love. Yeah, so
0: basically what happened was, um, after the I felt the divine love, I, I I thought to myself, okay, you know, I mean, I thought a lot of things, but, once, but it already kind of slipped into a naive view that I think a lot of people in America have about about Christianity, even though I wasn't a Christian yet because I didn't know it was a Christian God who saved the, the God who is, you know, Christ. Um, and so I'd already had this view that, well, I'm going to be a better person now, but I didn't have this view that I was going to, go through a radical conversion and put on the mind of Christ. And so God wanted to sort of um, get me out of that error, right off the bat, okay? Um, so after the first day, I then had an experience you can read about on the blog where God shows me his holiness, how pure and holy God is, and how we're called to his perfection, right? And then two days later, um, this takes us to the vision of the demonic... Basically, what happened was over those three days, the divine love slowly drained out of me, right? And on the and on the third night, it was finally gone. And uh, so I decided to go running at a at a local park, Maybury Park in Michigan, with my dog, late at night. And uh, as I arrived at the park, these evil thoughts came out of nowhere, and uh, and it, it was one after another after another with a kind of rising fury. I describe it as a kind of rising, a crescendo of evil. And unlike normally when demons um, work on us, normally it's sort of veiled, and they are able to subtly push suggestions into our mind, and we don't even realize it. But this was different because God had let me clearly distinguish their exterior voice, so to speak, It wasn't really a voice. It was just a thought, so to speak, that was sort of bouncing into my mind. Um, So I could clearly distinguish their actions on me from my own thoughts. And so, you know, I was in shock, and I said to God, are there demons? There must be demons. And so I started my run, and the the whole time I'm running, I was talking to God. He wasn't obviously answering, but I was saying, are there demons? There must be demons. And I was actually kind of excited because I thought that after the divine love faded away, that I'd kind of be on my own and would have to figure out who God was and what I needed to do on my own. But I realized that he was showing me something else. So I was actually very excited, even though it was really bad news. And so as I'm saying this, are there demons? There must be demons. I ran out of the woods into an opening uh, where there are kind of paths and dirt roads intersect. And all of a sudden, right before me, Uh, at a distance of about 50 to 75 yards, there were about a 1,000 demons kind of furiously trying to make their way to me.
1: And you you saw them with your physical eyes?
0: Yeah, I saw them clearly. In fact, as you know, Roy, when you have an experience, and I'm sure some of your listeners too know, when you have an experience of seeing an angel or whatever... That experience is almost burned on your mind permanently. You know that's actually how you know whether an experience is from God or just a sort of regular experience. So yeah, that image is burned into my mind. And permanently. what
1: did they look like?
0: Well, they actually they all look different. Um, I mean, to be honest, they look exactly like um, those medieval paintings, like Caron Bosch and people like that. But how I describe it is they look like a thousand different failed genetic experiments. They were basically animal humanoids. Um you know, some ran, some flew, some were fat, some were skinny, some their colors were all ugly. Some were like kind of earth tone, ugly earth tones. some were sort of did, ugly neon colors.
1: Did you but notice um that they were asymmetric? You know, that the that the left side didn't match the right side? Did, was that part of this? Seriously. Um, no, no, no.
0: Um, well, you know, I do talk in my story, right, about how demons seem formless, right? And that's what you're getting at with the a
1: No, symmetry. not formless. Uh, that, that The, the symmetry, that there's, there's a beauty to symmetry, which they don't have, and so exactly. the left side doesn't yeah. match the right side. There's something exactly. distorted yeah, about I mean. them always.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. So kind of what I'm... I've mentioned, talking about my story, about the way that they're deformed. Um, you know there were so many of them. I wasn't really, I was focused more on the body of them, meaning the the mass of them, rather than looking at particular ones. Um, so, you know, I can't really, I mean, I can't say for sure. Sure. But um, anyway, um, okay. So,
2: after that, so, happened, oh, go
1: ahead. Let me, let me, uh, let me just, uh, because this is obviously a, uh, a hot topic and yeah. and I just want to make sure that um everyone is is with us first of all you know as as Catholics actually we can't question the existence of the devil and demons. it's dogma, and uh the new catechism of the Catholic Church, beginning in about paragraph six seventy uh, excuse me two sixty seven talks about the devil and the demons and where they come from so uh let me just you know give a little. Catechesis, if I may. So reading from the Catechism, the devil and the other demons were indeed created naturally good by God, but they became evil by their own doing. The devil has sinned from the beginning. He is a liar and the father of liars. Scripture witnesses to the disastrous influence of the one Jesus calls a murderer from the beginning. The power of Satan is nonetheless not infinite. He is only a creature, powerful, but still a creature. He cannot prevent the building up of God's reign. Although Satan may act in the world out of hatred for God and his kingdom in Christ Jesus, and although his action may cause grave injuries of a spiritual or even a physical nature to each man and to society, the action is permitted by divine providence, with which, uh, which with strength and gentleness guides human and cosmic history. It is a great mystery that providence should permit diabolical activity, but we know that in everything, God works for good and with excuse me we know that in everything, God works for good for those who love Him. That's Romans 8:28. Um, so the devil and the demons would have us believe that they're intrinsically powerful, but in fact, they're permitted nothing more than they're permitted by God for His eventual purpose. And if you stop to think about what life on earth is for. Life on Earth is on, on is largely for the uh, building up of virtue, and the uh, frankly, first of all, the building up of virtue, so that we are in a position to graduate into heaven, and also for suffering, because and I don't think anyone has the answer to why suffering is at the heart of the economy of of redemption, but it clearly is when God's only Son took human form or actually became a man and came to earth. It wasn't primarily to reign in glory. It wasn't at all to reign in glory. It was to suffer and die to bring about the redemption of man. And we know, including from St. Paul, that we're called upon to sort of um, unite our suffering with the suffering of Christ to complete the redemption of mankind. And where would suffering come also, if it weren't for the devil and the opposition we get from him? And where would um, a building up of virtue and resistance to temptation and so forth come from, if we weren't faced with that, um, those temptations from the devil and from the demons? St. Uh, Ignatius of Loyola has a tremendous amount of sort of spiritual theology around this this field of spiritual warfare in which we all live. Um, And uh, it's, it appears in his spiritual exercises. And I would like to talk about that a little bit because it kind of, I think uh, fills in some of the background or the picture, Scott, of, of what you were saying, because in fact, your visual experience of demons was preceded by an awareness of their activity in your thoughts that you were having all of these very, You know, negative or vicious or angry or whatever thoughts, which you could feel were coming from outside of yourself. Now, St. Ignatius of Loyola teaches that when we have thoughts, they can be coming from essentially one of three places. They can be coming from God, whether through the Holy Spirit or through our good angel. They could be inspired, in other words, by the good guys, by God. They could be of human origin, coming purely from ourselves, or they could be of diabolical origin, being inspired by the devil or being inspired by the demons. So let me um, just uh, uh, actually talk a little bit. St. Ignatius then gives rules of discernment by which we can try to discern where our thoughts are coming from. In your case, Scott, it was rather obvious, and as a matter of fact, it was illustrated by, by... Almost, you know, I don't want to say medieval paintings, but of a, you know, real physical vision of the nature of of demons and the activity of the demons. But let me read a little bit from uh, Saint Ignatius's Rules of Discernment. Uh, uh, That's Rules of Discernment of Spirits, which, um, through the words of uh, uh, Father John Harden, who passed away recently, who was a very eminent uh, Jesuit uh, uh, priest and scholar and spiritual director. So these are largely the words of uh, Father Hardin. There are three kinds of interior movements which a person may experience. The first type is produced by the person himself. The other two are induced by intelligent powers outside the person, either good or evil. If good, the operating agent is God or one of his obedient spirits. If evil, it is the devil or one of his minions. We should be able to distinguish our native thoughts and sentiments from those produced by forces outside of ourselves, and then know the differences between inspirations that originate with God and temptations which come from the devil. In other words, this is like two sequential forks in the road that uh, John Harden is talking about, that first we distinguish whether the thoughts are coming from within ourselves or outside ourselves, and if they're coming from outside ourselves, we distinguish whether they're coming from the good spirits or the bad spirits. Going back to the words of uh, Father Harden, The good and evil spirits operate on human souls for diametrically different ends. The good spirits, whether God directly or his angels and saints, are uniquely interested in guiding men to their eternal destiny in the beatific vision. All the light and inspiration they offer are intended to lead us closer to God. The devil and his minions intend the very opposite. Condemned to hell themselves, they envy our lot as adopted sons of God and heirs of heaven. In the permissive will of providence, they can incite us to sin, and if we allow them, cause our destruction by death in the enmity of God. Now, the first step is to determine whether we are in a state of inner peace. Um, St. Ignatius of Loyola and, and then uh, Father John Hardin goes on to talk about tools we can use to try to discriminate between whether we are under the influence of the good spirits or of the bad spirits. And basically, his principle is that the bad spirits produce in us um anxiety, turmoil, fear, anger, all of these negative emotions. So if we feel those emotions stirring in our soul, we should be pretty suspicious that the thoughts coming into our head are not coming from the good spirits. And if they're coming from outside of ourselves, they're probably coming from bad spirits. On the other hand, the hallmark of God and the hallmark of the Holy Spirit and the hallmark, therefore, of the obedient angels is to fill us with Peace and love and consolation and faith and hope and love of God. And so, if we feel those in our soul, if we feel that sense of interior joy and peace, it's unlikely that we're under the influence of the bad spirits. It's much more likely that we're under the influence of the good spirits. And then um, the the bottom line of all of this is, of course, that nothing happens without the will of God. And all of this is for our as all of this is for our good, so there's never anything genuinely to be afraid of coming from the demonic, other than our own weakness, in a sense. Because the only genuine harm the devil can do to us is through tempting us, and us then succumbing to that temptation. Saint Padre Pio used to say, "The devil is like a chained dog, as you know, the, you know, this vicious dog that's on this 15 foot chain. If you're 16 feet away, if you stay far enough away from him, all he can do is." Bark and jump and bear his fangs, but he can't do you any danger. He can't do you any genuine harm. But should you be so foolish as to get within his orbit, then he can really do something to you. So this, I mean, I I very much wanted Scott for you to tell that story about the demons because it's tremendously important to be aware of the world of spiritual warfare in which we live. But I also wanted so sort of illumine the other side, that it's not a cause for fear, it's, it's just a cause for fearing our own sinfulness and being careful to stay on the straight and narrow. But I've taken up some of your precious time, and we only have a few minutes left, so let me give it back to you if um, there's anything you want to say in the last two or three minutes to our listeners, and I apologize for, for uh, you know well, took too much of your time.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I would just say is a quick thought experiment Well, you were a you know, business professor at Harvard, and if your colleagues, if every one of your colleagues had a kind of experience of God's love, right, only a few of them would quit, right, and go do something else, right? I I think so, because they say, well, look, you know, within this, you know, I know there's this God and I can do great things as a a professor of Harvard, but this is my opinion, if those professors also had a vision of the demonic and what the real... um, you know, the real glory, beauty, and conversely, ugliness and evil that is really the kind of fabric of human life, right? Because you can have, you can feel God's love and understand the beauty and purity of God, right? And not also understand just how ugly and awful sin is, right? But if you put the two together, right, and see the whole picture, right, I'm telling you, in my opinion, you know, that that Harvard business department would be emptied out quick because they would just say, What am I doing? That's you know, right. what am I doing here? I need to go see the poor in Jamaica or something. Yeah. You know? The stakes
1: yeah. are so much higher if we're were aware of, of how high the stakes are, you know, because you know, if we're doing something, you were robbing banks, right? If you were the world's most successful bank robber, you know, you'd be rich for maybe sixty years before you died or eighty years. Sure. And if we're doing the right thing by God, we're going to be, you know, richer than George Soros for all eternity. Yeah. You know, the stakes and, and by the way, if we do the wrong thing with respect to God, we're going to be more miserable than the most you know miserable prisoner in the most miserable prison in Turkey in solitary confinement in a filthy <laughs> hole for the rest of his life and it's going to be for all eternity. So exactly. you're right. If we if we were aware of the stakes, if we try to make ourselves aware of the stakes, it's a great uh, motivation to um, to spend yeah. our life in the in the right direction. So anyway, I just want to thank you. I've t- we've totally run out of time, but thank you very much, Scott, for yeah. joining us on the show. Thanks, and uh, if anyone wants to uh, came in late, wants to hear the whole show, the shows are archived on RadioMaria.us um, or on my website SalvationIsFromTheJews.com. And I hope you join us next week at the same time for another show of Salvation is from the Jews.
0: You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Salvation is from the Jews with Roy Showman.